Tonight we're going to do a new talk, actually a new talk, but taking a new look at this old world. And we really, really don't want to just knock down some of those teachings that you've been taught about the age of the earth. What we really want to do is we want to replace it with a better way of explaining the geology that you see as you're driving into this church and as you see as you're going through Grand Canyon and as you see as you are driving all around this place. And I'm going to cover the, uh, many, many of the scientific issues related to geology tonight. And my colleague, Dr. Hebert, is going to cover some of the biblical issues. So right off the bat, taking a new look at this old world, in my prior profession, I was an engineer before I went to medical school, licensed engineer for 10 years. And one good thing about engineering is it says up there, and you're glad that they do it because you're sitting in a building that was engineered, is that things that we design are based on real experiments, real studies, and real results. And hopefully, there is no speculation in the things that are designed, that you're living in and driving on. And then I went out of there and I went to medical school, and hopefully you're very glad that when you work with your physician, you're also getting medications and treatment plans which are based on real experiments, real studies, real results, not a lot of imaginative speculation where there is a minimum of speculative stories. Now, when I was an engineering student, I was a mining engineering student, so I took a lot of classes in geology. And many of my classes, like structural geology, petrology, mineralogy, they're just based on pure science. But when it came to historical geology, I can tell you this, I heard a lot of stories, one story after the other, and we're going to address those tonight. So we're going to address them and hopefully replace it with a better finding. And so I would ask you the question, could catastrophe, a catastrophe like described in the Bible in the Genesis flood, could it explain a lot of these new findings? And as we go through this talk, we're going to try to connect a lot of geological dots. They're not going to be overly complex. They're going to be things that everybody can understand, that everybody sees as they drive around this country and other places. But this alternative way of looking at the geology is going to be based on real observations, experiments, and real results. And it's going to have a very realistic threshold of explanations. So one of the things we want to discuss right off the bat is a really, really hard finding for anybody who's going to hold to the earth, being millions and millions, if not billions of years old, is the fact that we are finding soft animal tissue in solid rock, soft animal tissue. And this is the paper from 2005 from one of the world's leading paleontologists on this study, Dr. Mary Schweitzer. And you can read the headline, Tyrannosaurus Rex. So you're reading a scientific paper in church. Tyrannosaurus rex soft tissue, <laughs> I know that's not really that, it's, it's kind of shocking, raises tantalizing prospects. And there was a femur from a Tyrannosaurus rex, that's this big grown bone right here, too big to get in the helicopter, so they broke it open, and she took it back to the lab, and she dissolved some of the bony material around it, and this is what she found. She was able to find studies based on her prior research from 1993, where she also found some soft tissue, and in 2005, when she took that home, she took it home from an incomplete, in, incompletely fossilized T-Rex femur that was supposedly 65 million years old. And she found blood vessels with blood cells still in them, as you see that on the screen. Because everybody see that blood vessel there? It's under the magnifier. 
And there's a big blood cell right in the middle of that bone. And in addition to that, she found other soft tissue right there. And you can see it up on the screen. Soft tissue right here, cartilaginous tissue, fresh-looking bony tissue, bony fragments that are also connected by soft tissue. And you could take those bony fragments and you could stretch them apart, and they would stretch and they would snap back. That's quite remarkable that you're finding that in bone that is 65 million years old. Now, I know Avon and other things have conditioners that you can put on your skin to prevent those wrinkles and give you that nice elastic thing that you used to enjoy. But I doubt it's going to last 65 million years, even if granny looks that old. I mean, really now, it's not going to last that long. So this, the fact that they're finding the soft tissue is really, really difficult to find. And a press release that was released from her university at the same time these studies were published in Science said, current theories about fossil preservation hold that organic molecules should not preserve beyond 100,000 years. And that's right. How did they get the 100,000 year? Nobody's actually studied tissue for 100,000 years. But under the best of soft tissue and extrapolating under those best possible conditions, you only get about 100,000 years for these molecules. And this is based on real scientific studies. There's a pictures of other things she found in the bone, more blood vessels, more red blood cells. And went on and on that she found all of these things. And Discover published an article on her findings. Schweitzer, her name is Mary Schweitzer, Schweitzer just found soft, fresh-looking tissue inside a T-Rex femur. She erased the line between past and present, and then all heck broke loose. <laughs> Didn't break loose with creationists. In fact, we're kind of shamed about that because we should have been looking for that. We should have been looking for the soft tissue. But it broke, this, this dispute broke loose between people who hold that these things are 65 million years. And that's why she had this discovery. This article went on to say that translucent blood vessels by all rules of paleontology, and these rules are based on real scientific observations, should have long since drained from the bones. It's a matter of faith among scientists that soft tissue can survive at most a few tens of thousands of years, not the 65 million years since T-Rex walked in the Hill Creek Formation in Montana. There was a little side blip there you see on the screen. It says where she, they're quoting her. She said, I had one reviewer tell me that he didn't care what the data said. Didn't care what the data said. He knew that what I was finding was impossible. He was right in the sense that he knew what was impossible based on real scientific studies. She wrote back and said to him, well, what data would convince you? And he said, none. There's an open-minded scientist willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads. The reason why he said that is because there are many, many studies, including this one right here, which is my favorite. This is the doomsday vault. Those Norwegians think that humanity is going to kill itself or most of us in some nuclear war. So in one of their frozen islands up there, a seed vault and you can see it goes in, there's a, there's a door there, and it goes in hundreds of feet into this island, which is a frozen island, and they keep these seeds at constant temperature, not exposed to light, constant humidity, inside sealed cases, inside sealed aluminum pouches, behind two vault doors, and as you can see, they're protected by a polar bear <laughs> on that. 
And they're storing thousands of seeds. And as it says it on the screen, the seed vault is a perfect place for keeping seeds safe for what? Centuries. Sorry, Carrie Fowler. At these temperatures, seeds form important crops like wheat, barley, and peas. And all of that can last for up to what? 10,000 years. Not millions of years. And these aren't seeds that are laying in the ground, exposed to the weather like T-Rex bones are. Because just like you, all biomolecules are breaking down. Breaking down in and of themselves. Well, it wasn't just that T-Rex bone. Other researchers went on to find, along with Mary Schweitzer, a hadrosaur bone. 80 million years old. And inside that, you find the other blood vessels. You find more blood cells. You even find cells that are making bony material themselves, the osteocytes. How in the world are you still finding these cells viable and not destroyed after 80 million years? It gets worse. This is a salt crystal that was mined off Louisiana. And inside the salt crystal that was supposedly 250 million years old, they found living bacteria. And it was still alive, and they were able to plate it and actually culture it and sequence its DNA. That's one tough bacteria, <laughs> 250 million years old. Gets worse. Unexpected exoskeleton remnants found in Paleozoic fossils. This is, this is the skeleton that you would find on the outside of a crab, if you're not allergic to them, or shrimp or lobster, or any of those kind of arthropods. It's made out of protein and sugars. And the paper says this, surprising new research shows that contrary to conventional belief, remains of chitin, that's a protein complex, with proteins and sugars, are present in abundance in fossils from the Paleozoic era. And these fossils are supposedly 310 to over 400 million years old. And you're finding that soft shell that you would find on the outside of a shrimp lasting for over 300 million years? This is where I would turn it on the evolutionist and I would say, hmm, pause and contemplate how long a million years is. And just contemplate that. Now you've got to go 310 of those and you're preserving that soft protein coat on the outside of these fossils? This is an interesting one. This is a squid that they found in, in rocks that were supposedly over 150 million years old. It's the ink sac of the squid, and it still has the ink in it. And you see there up on the picture, a man drew a picture of the squid from the ink in the ink sac that was supposedly 150 million years old. And interesting, it looks like a squid living today. Hasn't even evolved in 150 million years. Now, Vic would love to find the formula for that ink that can last 150 million years. And you know, the interesting thing is, is most people don't even know about these findings. Most students at the University of Arkansas aren't learning about this. Most teachers who are teaching evolution don't know about this. And the ones who do know about it, they just kind of step over these findings without missing a beat. And their thinking is, well, it must last that long. What else could explain it? This is a fossil that was just published this week. This week. 
And it's a fossil of a spider. Fossil of a spider that's supposedly 90 million years old. And you can look up there on the screen. Look, this is that tissue in the back of a spider's retina that makes their eyes reflect when you shine a light and you see the spider's eyes reflecting on you. It's still intact. Still intact. After 90 million years old. And it's still reflecting. That's quite remarkable. Or maybe they're not these tens of millions of years old. Mary Schweitzer facing questions of how in the world could these soft tissues last this long. She's published several articles. This is the one that's clearest for everybody to understand called Blood from Stone in Scientific American right there. She gives lots of other pictures of other types of soft tissue that she's found that's supposedly millions of years old. And then she goes on and says this in the article. Many in the scientific community remained unconvinced that she was actually finding these soft tissues. Our findings challenged everything scientists thought they knew about breakdown of cells and molecules. So I read through the article. How is she going to explain this? This will be an interesting article. I'd like to hear her explanation for this. So I read to the last paragraph of the article, and it ends like this. Our work does not stop here. There is still so much about ancient soft tissues that we don't understand. Why are these materials preserved when all our models say that they should be degraded? And that's where the article ends. No answer. She published another paper a few years later trying to explain that maybe iron, maybe the iron in the, in the muscles and in the blood of these, these creatures, some of which don't have that much iron, is supposedly preserving them. But to this day, there is not a scientific paper published anywhere on this planet which gives an explanation for this. And this is a major hurdle. So before anybody goes any further about discussing things on the age of the earth, the scientific community should answer these findings. Answer these findings. In fact, you can do a Google search and you can come up with a paper that lists, you can come up with a document that lists over a hundred papers, scientific papers that are documenting the discovery of soft tissue and solid rock. So these are not isolated examples. And the scientific community is completely silent for all practical purposes in coming up with a viable explanation not an explanation, a viable explanation for how we're finding these soft tissues. So in this case, real experiments based on real tissue degradation gives a maximum age of these of 100,000 years. And the belief of old ages is trumping the real scientific evidence. And it was trumping it before Trump was even Trumpish on all of that. There. So this is, a, so there. If I was Trump, I would tweet, so there. Anyway, <laughs> oh, I shouldn't get political. Anyway, that's that. So the question is, could a catastrophe, a worldwide flood that's going to trap animals fast, bury them now, about 4,000 years ago, could that be explaining 4,500 years ago, could that be explaining why we find these kind of soft tissues and other things? What about carbon-14? Now, we all hear about carbon-14 dating, and everybody says, well, how do you, what about carbon-14? 
Well, we're going to talk about two different types of radio, radiometric dating during this talk. Carbon-14 is usually used for dating things that were once alive. And all of the information I'm going to take from is from a, a publication by our ministry. It's not out there on the book table. It's a real thick scientific book by Dr. John Baumgartner on the age of these tissues that we are finding here. So if I were to tell you that this pot of water has been boiling on this stove for a thousand years, would you believe it? No, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it because you intuitively know it's not there. But if you were really, really scientific, you would get some way and you would measure precisely the rate of evaporation of the water from that pot. You would be able to measure how much water did the pot originally hold. And you could put a camera on there and see if anybody has secretly been putting water into the pot. This is how carbon-14 dating happens. You have a rate of which some of it is breaking down. And you have an original amount. And you can kind of figure out how long it's been there. So how in the world does we even get carbon-14? Well, up in the atmosphere, there are nitrogen molecules, because we know nitrogen is the major gas in our atmosphere. And these high-energy particles from outer space, called cosmic rays, they come shooting through the Earth. They go through most everything. And when they hit these nitrogen molecules, they have so much energy, they can change it from nitrogen to carbon. Carbon-14. Nitrogen-14 to carbon-14. And the carbon is in the air. And if you remember biology class, plants take in carbon from the air and water from the ground and sunlight. And they work all of these things together and they make sugars in a process called what? Photo? Photosynthesis. So all of the plants are taking in regular carbon-12, but they're also taking in a tiny amount of this carbon-14. So all of the plants have mostly carbon-12, but a little bit of carbon-14 in them. But then we eat the plants. All the creatures eat the plants. So you're taking in some radioactive carbon-14 in you as well. So all of you are a little bit radioactive in a sense. And as long as you're eating, hopefully you're taking in about the same amount of carbon-12 to the same amount of carbon-14. But when you die, that's when the clock starts because you're no longer taking in that radioactive carbon-14, and it begins to break down, and half of it will be gone in about 5,700 years. And after about 100,000 years at the most, they should detect zero carbon-14 in you. None. By the best instruments out there, none should be detectable in you, because it all should have broken down during that time. And that's how carbon-14 works. The trouble is that every piece, without exception, every piece of ancient carbon that has ever been tested has detectable carbon-14 in it. Not at micro levels, but at levels tens to hundreds of times larger than you should be detecting it, particularly if these things are tens to hundreds of millions of years old. But you'd have none. But we find it in every piece that has ever been tested. The Institute for Creation Research, we, we even tested it on diamonds that were supposedly 2 billion years old. And we didn't do the tests. We didn't even collect the diamonds. We had someone collect the diamonds. We sent it to an independent lab to test it. And they all had measurable radioactive carbon in it. Giving them an age at that time of about 50,000 years or less. 
And then we did another really, really interesting experiment, which we didn't do. But we requested from the U.S. Department of Energy Coal Sample Bank, we requested from them 10 samples of coal. 10 samples, as you see it there on. We didn't pick them. We said we want three samples of coal that are supposedly about 58 to 34 million years. We want another three samples that are about 145 to 66 million years. And we want four samples of really old coal that may be up to 320 million years. We didn't pick the samples. They picked them, they sent. We sent those samples off for independent testing. And they all came back with measurable radiocarbon in them which should be none, but even more interesting, they all came back with the same age. That is really, really interesting. So how in the world do you get these different layers of coal that are measuring out at the same age, unless they were all buried at the same time? Same time, in a worldwide flood, Measuring, burying some vegetation, putting some sediments in, burying some more vegetation, more sediments, more vegetation, and then even some coal that's even higher than that. All measuring out at the same time. So the fact that we're finding all of these carbon-14 dates, 50,000 years or less, contradicts, contradicts the claim that these samples are tens to hundreds of millions of years old. All samples, and you can say this with confidence, have detectable radioactive carbon in them when most of them should be carbon dead. And there is no satisfactory explanation for this from the scientific community. Someone will say, well, all of those samples are contaminated. Really? Every lab doesn't have good enough procedures that they can't handle these samples without contaminating them? Every sample? All contaminated? You know, yeah, so that's a pretty stretch, big stretch of the imagination for there. So carbon-14 is clearly in the camp of a young Earth, just like that soft dinosaur tissue. So maybe there's a better framework for explaining the fact that we're finding soft dinosaur tissue and we're still finding measurable radioactive carbon in coal samples that should be radioactively dead. Maybe a better way to explain that is with a global flood. So instead of just pushing back, boom, these are reasons why you should reject this ancient, ancient age for the earth, what I would like to do now for the rest of the talk is give you a way to explain this to your friends that hopefully will connect a lot of geological dots together. Replace it with a better explanation for that. That maybe this global flood is a better way to explain the geology that we see all around us. Now some people scoff at a global flood, but they don't scoff at the fact that they believe that there was a global flood on Mars. As you see up there, ancient oceans once covered much of Mars. This is an interesting story. They said Mars was covered in this water. In fact, they said it was flooded, and this is a quote, with a flood of what? Biblical proportions. <laughs> Biblical proportions. And so you have scientists who and oh, by the way, is this what Mars really looks like? You see on the picture, or is that an artist's imagination? That's an artist's imagination because this is what Mars really looks like. You don't see it covered in water. You don't see that at all. But then they scoff and say, well, how can, how can you believe that the Earth was covered in a worldwide flood? I mean, where did all the water come from? 
I was like, what? Look at this planet. It's covered in water. In fact, if you go to some places on the planet, spin the globe around, all you see is water. You can do this. You can go to Google Earth, play with it, spin it around. You'll see it's covered in water. So where did all the water come from? It's here. It's been here on this earth. Maybe we should ask, where did all the geological activity come from that raised these continents up and many of them that would explain how it was actually covered in a worldwide flood? So could a global flood cause all of these things? Well, this is the part where we start to reprogram what we've been taught in school and reprogram it so that we actually look at things a little bit differently. What in the world would that look like? Are there any natural experiments that might give us an idea of what a catastrophe was like, particularly in relations to geology? And the answer is yes. Everybody recognizes this, particularly the older folks in the room. This is a picture of Mount St. Helens, which blew apart in 1980. I was a student at Moody Bible Institute when it happened. And the geologists knew it was going to blow because it was actually growing, so to speak, at over six feet a day. That's how magma was pushing up into that. And it was covered in snow, and a lot of that was cracking and going into the cracks, and it melted and it turned into steam. And what we actually had here was a massive, massive steam explosion of Mount St. Helens, equivalent to hundreds of Hiroshima-type size atomic bombs. It blew over 600 feet of elevation off the top of Mount St. Helens, came rushing down the hill at hundreds of degrees Fahrenheit, over 100 miles an hour, blasting away everything in its sight, leaving this kind of like destroyed wasteland in its wake, looking a lot like Texas in many ways to me. <laughs> and as I, as I look over this here... I was like, wow, who would want to live there? <clears throat> Texas Instruments. But anyway, so you find this. You find this massive destruction. And why this is a lab experiment is because scientists were there. They saw it explode. They came back right after it explode, exploded. And they were able to look at sedimentation and things. Now, this picture, in my opinion, is the most important one in the entire talk, right here. Because if I were to ask you, just look at those rocks, look at those layers, just look at those for a second. Do those look old or do they look young? Do they look old or do they look young? They look what? Old. They look old. Of course they look old. They obviously look old because look at all those layers. Layer upon layer upon layer, which means they're obviously really, really old. But the problem is you don't really see age. Nobody really sees age. What you see is what you have been taught. And that's how seeing works. As you look at me right now, you, you, what, what, all your eyes are taking in is a bunch of light coming off those lights, hitting me, reflecting, going into your eyes, and your eyes are just data collectors. They're just collecting all kinds of data. And then they send that data to your brain, way back here, to the back part of your brain. And your brain is rapidly looking for matches. It's looking for matches of this incoming data with memories 
that you have stored of things. And that's how seeing works. And it begins when your kids are really, really small. And that's why nobody has a memory of what things were when you were one years old or less. Because when you're one years old or less, you don't know what anything is. Even though you're collecting data. And as kids grow up, they're asking, Mommy, Mommy, what is? Mommy, Mommy, what is? Dad, what is? Mommy, Mommy, what is? There's like 10 Mommy, Mommies for every dad. <laughs> what is? And Mom is telling them, this is cat. This is a dog. These are your Cheerios. And as baby sees those things, baby is storing that data in, so the next time it sees a Cheerio, it says Cheerio. So as you look at me, somewhere in your brain is a memory of a man. A man moving his arms. A young, virile man moving <laughs> his arms up there. That was, there's times when I'm joking, there's times when I'm serious, and that was totally serious. Being alive. But it's in there. It's in your brain. Somewhere. There's a memory of a very old man. It's stored in there somewhere. But it's in there. So when you were in school, and when I was in school, I was taught, these are old. And so in my memory, I lock it in. And then I'm saying, well, how do they old? Layers upon layers of upon layers. Millions and millions of years place these rocks. Isn't that what you were taught? And so when you look at them, they look old. That's why this picture is the most important one. Because this is something where you can reprogram your thinking. Because as you look at this and it looks old, the fact is all of those layers at the bottom were placed in one day in 1980. All of the middle layers were placed in four hours in 1980, and the top layers were placed in one day in 1982. And there is no debate, no debate about this because people actually saw it. And this is where the reprogramming comes in so that when you see this, you don't get this intuitive gut feeling, oh, that's really old. I want you to start seeing these layers and say, ah, those were rapidly deposited rapidly deposited. Even layers that look like that, those supposedly look old. Every one of those were placed in four hours. Wow, that's quite remarkable. And look at these. Don't those look old? I mean, look, here's like a dark gray layer, a light gray layer. Here's another one. Different layers. Clearly, clearly, clearly those had to be many, many, many years that put that down. They're perfectly flat, stacked right on top of each other. Different materials. How could they all come from the same event? But they did. They did. In one day. One day. And they really give good indications of that. It's quite remarkable that you can look at layers like this and say those were all placed in the same geological event. How about these really fine layers? Now, when I was a student taking my geology classes, my geology professors told me for certain that fine layers had to be deposited in very tranquil waters, very still waters where those sediments just settle down and sink really fine, making these fine layers, maybe one layer in a year, another layer in a year, another layer in a year. And you know what I did as a student? I wrote it down, layer after layer, year after year. 
But all of these were placed in one event. So when you look at that, you are actually seeing not evidence of age. What you're really seeing is evidence of rapid deposition. How about these layers? There's, in my talk, there's quizzes. Are these layers old or young? Well, these layers, I'm told, because these live out close to where I live, just east of where I live and east of the Black Hills in the Badlands of South Dakota, I'm told that these layers are over 65 million years old, even though they look an awful lot like these layers. And now I look at these layers. I, I would suggest maybe these layers are all placed in a rapid depositional environment as well. Are these old or young? Well, these are young because this is back at Mount St. Helens. And all of those layers that you see there were placed in essentially two and a half days. But they look old, but these are really, really young. And there's no doubt about it, even though they look old. So there's a lot that you see, but you're not really seeing that. You're seeing what you've been programmed to see. And what we really observe when we see these is we see really flat, extensive layers with a knife-edge contact. You know what I mean by knife-edge contact? This. Boom. Right there. It's like layers in a cake. You could take a knife and whoosh, chop off a layer. Whoosh, chop off a layer. They're absolutely flat, and you don't see any evidence of erosion between them, of major periods of time between them. You don't see soil between them. You know what I mean by soil? Branches, leaves, vegetative matter that gets mixed up and turns into soil. None of that. In some places in Mount St. Helens, they had a subsequent uplift. They bent those layers. They all bent without cracking because they were still soft and pliable when they bent. That's what we see all around us in Mount St. Helens. But when we go to Grand Canyon, in fact, you don't even have to go to Grand Canyon. As I was being driven to your church here tonight, I looked at layers along the side of the road next to a big golf course. You know what I'm talking about? And they're flat, totally flat with what? Knife-edge contact between all of the layers on that. I saw some others that had some real softy shales with some organic materials that had been buried in them. Here's some organic material called coal. And look at it. It's absolutely flat, trapped in there. No evidence of any time between these layers at all. Back to Grand Canyon, we see those layers we go to other layers in Grand Canyon, we see the hermit shale, that dark pink on the bottom, the coconino sandstone, the light on the top, and you see an absolute knife-edge contact between them. And I was told when I was taking my geology classes that this line represented a gap of time of 12 million years. No erosion, no gullies. And you know what I did as a student? I just wrote down. 12 million years. Because <laughs> students aren't really taught to think critically and ask a lot of critical questions. And you know, where I live in the Black Hills of South Dakota, we have these exact same layers up there with that exact same contact between them. That's quite remarkable. So we see evidence of rapid deposition all around us. We see evidence that these materials were really, really soft when they were deposited. Here's a layer in Grand Canyon that's been tipped up, and the top layer is broken off around it. And what do you see in this layer right here? Ripple marks. Water ripple marks. 
Now, how long do ripple marks really last on the beach before they're eroded away? Millions of years? Just like stuff, you know, tough bacterium. These have to be some tough ripple marks to last for millions of years. Or better yet, how about this? They were placed in the flood. Waves were coming in, bringing material in onto the continent. They left the ripple marks and whoosh, next came the next layer of sediment right on top of it and preserved those ripple marks. Not only does it preserve ripple mark, it preserves all kinds of animal tracks. I put the dino tracks up there because everybody likes dinos, and Dr. Hebert's doing a talk about dinos. But you don't just find massive plodding dino tracks. You find insect tracks, insect tracks trapped, animal tracks trapped. You find raindrops trapped. That's a tough raindrop. Unless they're put in there and the next layer poof, captures them and preserves them right off. We find clearly, clearly evidence of mass mortality and sudden burial because you find billions and billions of these creatures fossilized and trapped in those sediments. You know what I wish I would have asked my geology teachers when I was a student? <clears throat> you know, Dr. Lizenby, Dr. Lizenby, where do I, if, if the present is the key to the past, Dr. Lizenby, as I'm taught, where do I go on this planet where I'm finding billions of fossils being trapped in sediments? That's a great question. Do you know where you're going on this planet to find billions of fossils trapped in sediment? Nowhere. Because it's not happening. It's not happening. We find evidence of that because we find these massive bone beds where these bones are trapped very, very rapidly. Many of these fossils are clearly disarticulated and broken apart. We find evidence of rapid burial because we find fish being, boom, buried in the process of eating lunch, getting a bite of another fish. That means you're buried fast. You're really buried fast. Look at this. This is an ichthyosaur. This is a, this is a seagoing reptile. How do you know this was very fast? Because she was in the process of what? Giving birth to a little baby ichthyosaur. And bang, buried alive for a Kodak moment for all the world to see. I mean, can you imagine moms getting trapped like that on that? That is rapid burial. Really rapid burial. We find mixed environments. Fish buried in with palm trees and things like that. Fish buried in with birds, rapidly buried. Fish buried in with horses. Sharks buried in with dinosaurs. I mean, most of the time, horses aren't mixing with fish and dinos with sharks. And these sharks, by the way, we find living counterparts to them today, and they all live in saltwater oceans. When I was a student, I was told, that, well, these fish are freshwater fish, freshwater sharks. And, they were, and, this, and this horse fell into a creek and was buried alive. Really? Why do I find hundreds of horses like this? Did they all fall into a creek? Or maybe the reason why I'm finding fish with horses and birds and everything else is because this was a massive marine catastrophe burying these things, bang, bang, bang. Burying them alive. So as I mentioned, this whole talk is to connect a lot of dots. 
that may make more sense if we see this, if we see the geology around us in terms of a rapid catastrophe here. You can go to places like this in Grand Canyon and find rocks that are bent. In fact, these are bent 90 degrees. Here they are, whoosh, bent straight up. They're not cracked. They're not crushed. You know as well as I do, you can't take rocks and bend them. So when I was looking at rocks on field trips in the Black Hills, my geology teacher said these were buried at great depths and pressures where the temperature is really, really high and the rocks flow like toothpaste. You know what I wrote down in my lab book? Rocks flow like toothpaste. You know, this and that. I just kind of absorbed it. But I never asked him, well, Dr. Lisenby, if these rocks were buried at such high temperatures, why weren't they metamorphosed and baked into a different type of rock? That's a great question. Because these rocks are not metamorphosed. Maybe they were bent when the layers were still soft after Noah's flood, and that's why we don't see all of this cracking around them. So the uniformitarian would say, we look at all these layers here, and they were gradually placed one upon each other over really, really long periods of time. And I would say, no, maybe a better explanation for these is that there was a worldwide catastrophe which laid the layers down, bang, 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 really in about 150 days for most of them. And then the next 150 days for the flood, about a year long, you're, you're getting some of those other fine sediments right at the top of all of those layers. Maybe that's a better explanation. But what about erosion? What would catastrophic erosion look like? Well, Mount St. Helens provided an, an experiment for that because in 1982, there was another eruption and it sent down a massive mud flow down the side of the mountain and it carved some canyons, those canyons that we saw. And so this is the next second, second important picture in the talk. We see this canyon right here, 140th the scale of Grand Canyon. Now, if I were to ask you, does this look old or does it look young? You would say, it looked old. When I see that, that kind of looks old, really old. But it's not. The canyon was carved in one day. One day. And in fact... You can see the canyon left really steep walls, just like you find in Grand Canyon, all of these layers. And I might have been taught when I was in school that this, this creek right here took a really, really long time with some annual flooding and things to carve this canyon out over millions of years. But it wasn't carved out over millions of years. The creek didn't carve out the canyon. The canyon was carved in one day, and when it was carved, it made a path for the creek, not the other way around. It made a path for that creek. Now when I look at this picture, I don't see anything really old and dated in it except this guy's clothes right here. <laughs> I mean, they kind of like date him from that period of time back then. There's a canyon carved in Texas. I was actually stationed there at the time in 2002. On July 1st, all you saw there was a bunch of trees. There was no canyon. Then they got some really, really heavy rainstorms over the, basically over the 4th of July weekend. The damway spilled, pouring tons of water down. And by the end of the 4th of July weekend, this canyon was carved through solid rock in just a matter of days. Carved through solid rock. Now, if you're a good Texan, what do you do? You turn this into a tourist trap and you charge people money to see this. And that's what they do right now. 
So I just showed you two canyons that were carved in one day. How about this canyon? Is this old or young? Oh, the reprogramming is setting in. <laughs> because now you just can't look at it and say whether it's old or young. This is that Texas canyon. This was carved in one day. But it looks old. Looks pretty old there. But this is all carved in one day. Now you drive around, out west particularly, where there's not as much vegetation. You see this kind of ripple and valley terrain all over the place. Everywhere you go, you see this kind of stuff. And if you look at that, it kind of looks a little old. But Mount St. Helens provided another experiment for providing that, for just explaining that, I should say. Because there was a subsequent eruption through some hot volcanic ash on top of some snow, melted it and turned it to steam and boiled away. And in one day, that topography was formed. Even though it really looks old, it was all formed in one day. So the, the point being is you can't drive around and just look at something and say, wow, that has to be old. And, and, and instinctively, you just feel it really is really old because that's what you've been taught. The fact of the matter is we've probably been taught wrong. We've been probably taught wrong. And the things that we've been storing in our memory are probably wrong. Well, ICR used this eruption of Mount St. Helens to do some additional testing so we tested the volcanic material in the dome of Mount St. Helens. And at the time, there was a lava dome there, and it was only 29 years old. So we took some of those samples, we set it off for independent testing, and it came back with a date that was 2,400,000 years old. 2,400,000. Even though we know it was 29 years old. And in fact, I could have six slides of these, but I blanked the other five. And these are independent tests of known volcanic eruptions where we know the date of them, which is in the hundreds to several thousand years ago, and it comes back with dates millions to tens of millions of years old. Hmm. Why, aren't, why aren't you taught that in school? Why are you taught that this radiometric dating is like an ironclad example of old age and all the problems that I brought about carbon-14. So what Mount St. Helens has really taught us a lot about geology. We see flat extensive layers, which I'm challenging you now for the rest of your life. As you drive around this country, start looking at the layers and see if you don't see flat extensive layers with knife-edge contact, no soil between them, on and on and on, finding fossils and everything like that. And we can actually look at things differently. As I look at this little erosion out in Arizona here, now I'm, I'm wondering, if this has been eroding away for millions of years, why do I only find just a few of these large, broken-off rocks tumbling down the edge with only a few of these monster boulders sitting there at the bottom? Why don't I see what? Hundreds and hundreds of them laying down the thing if it's been eroding away for millions of years. And now when you look at Mount, when you look at Grand Canyon, and you look at this, you're wondering, where's all the sediment that should be setting on the shoulders of these cliffs? <laughs> you know what? I never even thought to look at that until someone pointed it out to me and asked, you know, if those have been eroding away for millions of years, where's the sediment laying on those shoulders? 
Or could it be that you don't find the sediment because a massive amount of water went shooting through there, carving the canyon and carrying all the sediment right with it? That's a better way of looking at that. Now, that's a cool observation. I take that down in my notes now. No sediments on the shoulders. That's a good one. So here's a challenge. As you drive around and you see these kinds of rock formations, start looking for the sediment. Start looking for those broken off, eroded rocks that have supposedly been eroding for millions of years. Start looking for that. You can also look at these layers in Grand Canyon. And you find these really thick limestones and really thick sandstones. And they're really, really thick. Some of them 10, 50, 100 feet thick. All waterborne sediments. Waterborne sediments. Laid down in water. Now, if the present is the key to the past, I would love to have asked my geology professor, Dr. Roggenthin, where do I find on this planet places where I'm seeing waterborne deposits that are 10 to 50 to 100 feet thick? Where is that happening today? Where can I go to see that happening? In fact, I'm 60 years old. Where could I have gone in my entire life to see that happening? The answer is nowhere. Because we're not seeing these massively thick layers being put down today. And not only are they massively thick, they are quite extensive. Quite extensive. In fact, these layers are down here in Grand Canyon. You can go up here to where I live over by the Black Hills. And as I already told you, you see those exact same layers in the exact same order. Same layers in the same order, not just thick, but extensive. And you can trace those layers all the way through Canada into Greenland. But the story gets even better. You can trace those same layers over into Europe. You can trace those same layers into Asia. You can find those same layers in Africa. You can find those layers in Southeast Asia. You can find those layers in Australia. And you can find those same layers in the Antarctic. Hmm. Dr. Lisenby or Dr. Roggenthin or any professor at the University of Arkansas, where can I go on this planet to see thick, waterborne layers that essentially cover what? The entire planet. Where is that happening today? The answer is nowhere. So maybe a better explanation for thick waterborne layers that cover the entire planet that are trapping millions and millions of fossils in them, including footprints, tracks, and everything else, including dinosaurs, which you can still find soft tissue in, is a worldwide flood. Here's another one right here. What about these coal deposits? Look at that, West Virginia. Totally covered in coal. Illinois. Missouri. Oh, wow. Didn't quite get you guys on that. Massive coal deposits. I live over here in western South Dakota. Right over here in northeast Wyoming is a massive coal deposit called the Powder River Basin. And most of the coal that's being burned in this country is coming out of that. And I find layers of coal that are over 100 feet thick. Pure coal. And, the, and it takes at least 
two feet to maybe ten feet of vegetation to make one foot of coal. Hmm. I asked a geology student who graduated from my alma mater, South Dakota School of Mines, where do you go today to find massive depositions of vegetation to produce coal deposits that can cover something like the Powder River Basin or more extensively, all of Illinois? Where are you finding that kind of vegetation being ripped up and deposited today? And you know what he said? Never thought of that. And he's got a master's in geology. So if you're a professor here at one of the major universities in this state, I would ask you, what is your explanation for these massive coal deposits? Massive. And they're not just in the United States. You know, they're in other continents as well. Well, maybe there was a massive worldwide flood which came through and ripped up all of this vegetation, lots of it being buried initially in some of the deposits on the flood, some of it floating around on the waters, and as the waters receded off of this continent, some of it going this direction, some of it going this way, some of that vegetation gets beached, like right up here, and covered with some other sediments, forming these shallow, shallow thick, really, really thick coal deposits. Hmm, that's a great... Maybe the flood ties in and ties together a lot of the geological findings we think of. And then just one last question, how old is humanity? This is really a good one. As I'm told by my evolutionary colleagues, that modern humans have existed for at least 200,000 years. Not dumb brutes, but modern humans, people just like us. They like to use the word modern because then it gives you the idea that there's some kind of ancient humans, modern humans, ancient humans, but they're all humans, all humans. Supposedly allowed for at least 200,000 years. And at the time I put these slides together, it was only 190,000 years. But some papers came out in the last several years which bumped the estimate up to 200,000 years. So if that's true, why is it that people took almost 185,000 years to 195,000 years before you realized you could take some of these things, stick them in the ground, and start growing crops why is it that you don't find agriculture dating back no more than 5,000 years? This is a picture of me holding my grandson, by the way, <laughs> on that. <laughs> Man, a lot. Oh, I tell ya. Oh, well. Anyway, I wish it was. So, and why is it that you can also date back human writing? Why is it that human written records only go back to, at the most, about 3,500 B.C. I mean, if humans have been around for 200,000 years just like us, why did it take 190,000 years before you could pick up something and start recording your notes? That makes no sense. No sense at all, but the fact that we find human written records going back to about the biblical timeline really, really does make sense. So I gave you a lot of evidences tonight pushing back, pushing back against old age explanations. And I gave you, hopefully, a better way of tying a lot of these observations together, which is a worldwide global flood, which ties so much of the geology that we see together. And unless we have a preconceived notion that there was no flood, it couldn't have happened, even though 
almost all the traditions of the people groups around this planet have, a, have a, an account of a worldwide flood. There's no reason to believe that it didn't happen and that it didn't trap all of these fossils and things, just like I'm explaining.